Hey, it's Brian. Before we get started, just a quick note that this episode and the other five in this special series discuss Santa Claus, but not in a way that younger listeners could appreciate. If there are little ones with an earshot, save this for later. Thanks. If John Gluck had made good on his plan to build a headquarters building for the Santa Claus Association, Christmas in New York City would look very different from how it does today. And it wouldn't be a stretch at all to say that Christmas itself would be different in some way. Maybe in a big way, maybe in a small way. But having a grand, majestic building in a major American city dedicated to all things Christmas and Santa Claus, that would absolutely have worked its way into our collective Christmas consciousness, just as surely as Macy's and 34th Street and Rockefeller Center have done. Now, I'm sorry to be the one to spoil the ending, but the Santa Claus Association headquarters building never happened. There was no groundbreaking ceremony, no ribbon cutting. There was never even a final decision on the location. But what there was at the time was a breathless news media. The press went crazy over the story. They essentially were Gluck's publicity arm helping to promote this building. That's Alex Palmer. He's the New York Times bestselling author of The Santa Claus Man, on which this story is based. Reporters sort of tripped over themselves talking up this building. It was, you know, almost every paper in New York promoted it with uh, big splashy stories and headlines. The illustration of the building that uh, had been commissioned ran in newspapers around the city and also even movie theaters would include little clips about the announcement. And it's easy to see why there'd be so much attention. Gluck had no doubt been swept up in the dramatic and impressive architectural transformation of New York City, with skyscrapers and majestic structures blooming all around. And the Santa Claus Association headquarters building would match or beat the architectural marvels of the day. It was going to be this massive arched portal at the front that would go 20 feet back, and there would be year-round this huge Christmas tree right at the front of the entrance. And then there'd be across the facade, these different depictions of Santa Claus from all the different countries of the world. So it'd be sort of this international mural surrounding the building. And maybe the most elaborate, most ambitious design element was this massive 35 foot by 50 foot stained glass window of Santa Claus himself. What was actually going to be in the building, it was not only going to be the headquarters for the association where they would be running their business throughout the year. There was also going to be what they called a Lilliputian Bazaar, this giant market where new toys could be showcased. So it was this commercial aspect where this is an opportunity for toy makers to come and sell their wares and to promote whatever was new. There was going to be a big theater, a library of children's books, a huge service kitchen and salon where they could feed the needy or have big elaborate benefit parties. There'd be also a high-end restaurant and a rooftop garden. It was just one thing after the other. And if that wasn't impressive and inspiring enough, there was also the matter of the all-star team he'd managed to recruit to add their own talent and credibility to the vision. He commissioned George and Edward Bloom to create what was uh, called the most unique building in America. Illustrator Maxfield Parrish was planning to contribute, as well as sculptor uh, Gutson Borglum, who would go on to create Mount Rushmore. Uh, they even got to, to scout out the location was Douglas Robinson, who was kind of the biggest realtor in the city at the time. There's a sketch from 1915, one of those artist renderings of what the building could have looked like. 
and it's every bit as grand and enchanting as it sounds. To see it is to wish it were real. And it's easy to look now and think, Gluck made this announcement at the end of the Santa Claus Association's second season. Sure, they'd done some great work in that short time, but were they really ready for a headquarters building? But at the same time, the idea didn't seem all that ridiculous. A lot of people saw it as something that needed to happen. Santa had grown, the image of Santa had become larger and larger in the, the public and mass media. And now this seemed like a natural next step. And this wasn't meant just to be in the U.S. This was meant to be a, an international symbol of the Christmas saint. Now, of course, something this ambitious and opulent would come with a price tag to match. But given just how easily Gluck had been able to get wealthy and powerful people to open up their wallets, that was the least of his concerns. Gluck mentioned to just a couple of press outlets was that uh, it was going to cost about $300,000 to construct, which at the time was quite a bit of money. That price tag didn't get as much play as you might think, and even less scrutiny was where this money would come from. There was this price tag mentioned, but then when they actually asked, you know, how would this be paid for, Gluck's answer was, as he said, the idea is one which should lend itself to the hearty cooperation of the public. And he said, we'll probably begin a campaign to ask the mothers of America to contribute to its construction. Uh, and that was about the extent of it. You know, it wasn't just Gluck sort of glibly assuming that the money would roll in. The son also said, you know, where the money will come from is the simplest problem in the world. Everybody in the world owes something to the old gentleman with the snowy beard and the capaciously filled red suit. This is Brian Earle from Christmas Past. So far, this has been a story full of turning points, mostly turning upward, notwithstanding a low-key art heist and a public dispute with the Boy Scouts of America. A workaday customs broker creates a media sensation and a landmark achievement by building a massive charity that's not a charity, which is responsible for getting tens of thousands of children's letters to Santa Claus answered, and along the way he partners with movie stars, Broadway producers, business leaders, and society ladies. He even gets a wife out of the deal, and literally ascends to new heights by moving his operations to the tallest building in the world at the time. And he raises silly amounts of cash, which he didn't even need, all as easily as snapping his fingers. And then finally comes within shouting distance of a real live Santa's workshop. Or did he? It's hard to tell how serious he actually was, even though he got a number of prominent people committed to this project. He rarely mentioned it after this massive explosion of publicity at the end of 1915. It doesn't seem like it got off the ground. And that may have been because the money just wasn't there or that he never had an intention of pursuing this, that this was always just more publicity stunt than legitimate plan. You might call that a low point, but you ain't seen nothing yet. Because sooner or later, even among the most charitable, even among the most credulous members of the public and the news media, sooner or later, someone is bound to start asking, where is all of the money really going? This is My Dear Santa, a true crime Christmas caper. A special six-part miniseries from Christmas Past. Chapter 4. War Santa Claus. The next few seasons were more low-key compared to the explosive growth of the previous years. Really, after the burst of attention from the Santa Claus building, you'd expect to see a lot more publicity around the group. 
it's hard to tell what would lead him to then withdraw in a lot of ways. Perhaps it was the ambition of the Santa Claus building. It may have partly been his preoccupation with the U.S. Boy Scouts at that time. That was keeping him very busy. And I really wish I could tell you there was some dramatic ending to the story about the headquarters building. Some big announcement or scandalous expose or even some high-profile departures over creative differences or something like that. But the simple truth is, it basically just fizzled out. There was a lot of attention, a fair amount of fundraising, and then nothing. It just vanished. It was a setback of sorts, but it's nothing compared to what was just around the corner. Because all of that boasting and calling out other charities in the media, all of those sneaky tactics and conflicts of interest and throwing shade, all of that was about to start catching up with John Gluck. Gluck had moved operations to the Hotel McAlpin for the 1917 season. That was also the year that America entered the Great War, which had been waging since the summer of 1914. And to tell this next part of the story, we need to do a little flashback, back to 1914 during the Santa Claus Association's second season. I already told you about the meteoric rise, the army of Boy Scouts, the Broadway and movie stars and all of that, but I withheld a couple of juicy tidbits until now. Given what we've come to know about Gluck, it should come as no surprise that he saw the Great War as an opportunity. So in 1914, he actually wrote a letter to President Woodrow Wilson. He reaches out and suggests this idea of a Christmas truce. During the week of Christmas to New Year's, both sides kind of put down their arms. And kids would be writing letters asking for peace, and then this morphed uh, to, you know, thousands of children would be writing letters for peace, and then this was thousands of children will be giving prayers for peace. And eventually uh, he was claiming that one million children would be praying for peace under the leadership of the Santa Claus Association. Now, don't bother consulting your history books. There's a reason you've never heard of the great Santa Claus Association truce of 1914. His secretary, I believe, was replied, uh, you know, sort of thanks, but, but no thanks. Now, he wasn't the first person to try something like this. Here's Wesley Livesey. He's the host of the podcast, The History of the Great War. If he suggested to have this truce and he failed, he would be in pretty good company because there were definitely other global leaders, uh, the Pope in Rome, who tried to convince the, the leaders of these various countries that were at war that there should be peace on Christmas, that they should have an official sort of ceasefire during that day. It wouldn't end up happening based on the Pope's suggestion either. But Gluck was undeterred. He tried again, this time taking his pitch to the ambassadors of the countries at war and making a similar, completely false claim that he could arrange for one million children from 40 cities across America to sing a Christmas carol on an appointed day and time. And he had plenty of help from the media when papers ran the story without even verifying it. But neither attempt worked, though Gluck would see some kind of vindication when there really was a now-famous spontaneous Christmas truce in 1914. Okay, now let's come out of our flashback and return to the present of 1917, where we find Gluck kicking things up a notch by devising some wartime strategies for the Santa Claus Association. Here's Alex Palmer again. He introduced things like what he called a red card system once once the U.S. entered the war, where if a child had a father who was a soldier who was serving overseas, their gift would get special priority. He created a group called Committee for Needy Children of German-American Descent. 
he briefly started using the name of War Santa Claus in some of the, the publicity of the group. Uh, so finding different ways to align the Santa Claus Association with World War One, and was fairly successful. He certainly got a lot of attention, and the, those were the sort of charities people wanted to talk about at the time. And it was more than just about tapping into people's sentiments or attaching his name to a topic of major public interest. As the war carried on, wartime charities were sprouting up. Here's Wesley Livesey again. You see a lot of, hey, let's get things together to send to the troops, either most of which are in training camps still in the United States. Some of them are overseas. And so, of course, they try and send Christmas gifts to to men at the front. There were definitely a lot of charities by Americans that sought to help the people of Europe. There were also a lot of other ones. So if you look through newspapers from the war, what you'll find is like people taking out ads and trying to garner support for, you know, hey, we just want to raise a couple thousand dollars to send to this city in France that was, you know, hit by artillery strikes. So the kind of charitable aspect was really apparent in America during the war. And all of that spelled potential trouble for someone competing for the public's charitable impulses. In a matchup between Santa and soldiers, there was a clear winner in the public's mind. Here's Alex Palmer again. As powerful as the idea of answering Santa letters were the first few years, by 1917, anyone who was money that wanted to, to make a charitable donation was looking for something war-related. Gluck was savvy enough to realize that that was going to be a more effective strategy. Now, while the war was getting a lot of people feeling charitable, it was getting other people feeling a bit suspicious. People like Edward Swan, the New York City district attorney, and he was going to do something about it. There was so much abuse with charities happening with the war. There was just so much generosity from the public and an eagerness on the part of legitimate charities, but then plenty of questionable charities or even just inefficient charities. So Swan directed Edwin Kilrow, his assistant district attorney, to start shaking the tree. And it quickly turned out that one of the problems with investigating a shady or inefficient charity is that there's not much tangible stuff to investigate. Shady charities aren't known for being sticklers about record-keeping, assuming they kept any records at all. It was very difficult to actually prove when laws were broken. But that isn't to say that Swan and Kilroe didn't turn up anything interesting, because one of the groups that came across his radar was one right in Gluck's own backyard. It was just a, a huge undertaking, and, and in the process, one of the groups that got flagged pretty quickly was the U.S. Boy Scout. As he started looking into the U.S. Boy Scout, he found that uh, Gluck was, was one of the main fundraisers on their list and that he had claimed that he had you know received a salary of $500 from the group. But then digging into it a little more, it turned out in addition to also collecting a salary as a staff member, he was getting this, these generous commissions, which then raises all kinds of questions about the conflicts of interest in the promotion of the U.S. Boy Scouts. As they joined the Santa Claus Association, he was fundraising for them. The better the U.S. Boy Scouts looked, the more funds they would bring in, the more money would be going into Gluck's pocket as a result. So Kilrow and Swan started digging in, and it looked to them like the United States Boy Scout grossly inflated its numbers, asking for more than it could possibly need. Sound familiar? And meanwhile, Gluck was up to some of his old tricks. He was writing fundraising letters for the Scouts that included the names of prominent people as honorary commissioners. Problem was, he was doing all of that without the permission of the people being named. 
But the really shady part was that the letters were addressed from the 7th Regiment of the United States Boy Scout. Gluck was using that name to play on the public's sympathy for the 7th Regiment of the New York Militia. It had served in the Civil War and was called into federal service in 1917. He also knew that because the name United States Boy Scout was so similar to the Boy Scouts of America, he could count on receiving donations from people who believed they were donating to that other group. And that was something that District Attorney Swan could actually do something about. So he called Gluck along with some of the officials from the United States Boy Scout into his office. At first, they refused to show up at all. And when they finally did, they basically refused to cooperate. But it was plain to see that the group was vastly inflating its numbers and that the only people benefiting from the fundraising were Gluck and the group's leadership. But again, hard to prove anything without adequate record keeping. So the best Swan could do, at least for the moment, was to order them to stop using the term 7th Regiment in their fundraising letters. And if that wasn't enough to stop them, maybe what happened next would be because the United States Boy Scouts' troubles were just getting started. The Boy Scouts of America stepped in and finally escalated their challenge to, the, to this rival group with a Supreme Court lawsuit. The lawsuit was over the name of the group, and the case would drag on for a couple of years, as these things tend to do, so we're going to leave it there for now, and we'll come back to it later. Meanwhile, let's get back to the Santa Claus Association, where it was pretty much business as usual, Again, a little more low-key these past few seasons, but basically carrying on, getting children's letters to Santa Claus answered, remaining popular and treated well in the press. But the high-profile nature of Swan and Kilroe's crackdown, and the scrutiny Gluck was already under, it started to leave its mark. Even the New York Times, which had always been friendly to Gluck, published an article stating that organizations like the Santa Claus Association were basically inviting people to make stuff up for free things. And maybe what happened next was because of the pressure of the investigations and the court battles. Or maybe it was because of resentment over signs that public sentiment was starting to drop. Or maybe he was just getting tired. Nobody really knows for sure why he did what he did next. But that December, without any advance notice, John Gluck announced that he was resigning as the president of the Santa Claus Association. And he named his wife Simona Boniface. The 22-year-old, no-experience, fresh-out-of-college Simona Boniface, he named her as the new president. Now she was the figurehead. He was putting her forward as running the organization. She had some ideas of her own about dividing up the city. They could more efficiently run the response by taking a couple different reorganization steps. But really was pretty much just fresh out of college. And this resulted in a number of the leaders of the group who had been uh, supporting it throughout for, for years departing. Things were falling apart. Maybe he needed to step away, though. Maybe he needed to keep a low profile, and maybe there was a reason for it that we haven't considered yet. And at least one of the group's quote-unquote honorary vice presidents thought that she knew what that reason was. A reason so explosive that she was compelled to put it in an anonymous letter and send it to the Secret Service. A reason that takes this story in a whole new direction. Because that letter claimed there was reason to believe that John Gluck was, in fact, a German spy. You've been listening to My Dear Santa, a true crime Christmas caper, a special six-part miniseries from Christmas Past. 
It's produced in sunny San Mateo, California by yours truly, Brian Earle. We had music in this episode from Dave Depper, Blue Dot Sessions, Poddington Bear, Kevin McLeod, and the United States Army Old Guard Fife and Drum Corps. This entire series is available now under the regular podcast feed for Christmas Past, so search for Christmas Past wherever you get your podcasts. And the other episodes for the season are coming soon, so make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out. And if you're feeling the Christmas spirit, why not help more people find the show by telling a friend about it or leaving a review on Apple Podcasts? Thanks to Alex Palmer and Wesley Livesey. You can find out more about everyone involved in the series and discover bonus content at christmaspast.media. And you can join the conversation by searching for Christmas Past on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and by using the hashtag MyDearSanta.